Hello everyone and welcome to the January 9th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision clarified when an injured inmate in a county jail on a work program is an employee for purposes of workers' compensation benefits. In this case, Aaron Brown became an inmate at Los Angeles County Jail, and he was then transferred to the Wayside facility, where he signed an agreement to participate in the Conservation Work Program. That program provided work time credits of one and a half days for every one day of work in the program. Brown slipped and fell while walking to the coffee pot at the print shop where he participated in the work program, and he reported the injury immediately and was sent to an urgent care facility. But Los Angeles County denied his claim for workers' comp benefits, asserting that there was no employment relationship. After a trial, the work comp judge found that Mr. Brown was not an employee for purposes of work comp benefits, and the judge relied upon an ordinance passed in 1970 by the county that states that county inmates may be forced to labor, but that such county inmates shall not be considered an employee for the purposes of workers' compensation insurance. But Brown's petition for reconsideration was granted, and the WCAB panel concluded that he was indeed an employee at the time in the case of Brown versus County of Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. The Labor Code provides that any person rendering services for another is presumed to be an employee, but this is a rebuttable presumption. The Penal Code then provides that county inmates working in the suppression of fire are considered employees of the county, but it does not speak as to the employee status of county inmates who do not work in fire suppression. The employee status of county inmates are thus left to the courts to decide. And there is a difference in determining employee status between persons incarcerated in state prison and, in this case, a person incarcerated in a county jail, as was Mr. Brown. State inmates are statutorily included in the definition of employee while those inmates are subject to a compulsory test to determine their employee status. Courts have looked at whether the work that the inmate performed was voluntary, as was the case for Mr. Brown, or compulsory as an incident to incarceration, and whether there was consideration paid for the work performed. If an inmate was performing compulsory work as an incident to penal servitude, he is not an employee and has no rights to workers' comp benefits. In deciding whether an inmate was performing compulsory or voluntary work, trial courts may ask the following questions, known as the Rowland factors taken from a 1990 case of Rowland versus the County of Sonoma. The Rowland factors are 1. Did the county require the worker to work as a condition of incarceration? 2. Did the inmate worker volunteer for the assignment? And 3. What consideration was received, if any, for example, monetary compensation, work time credits, and freedom from incarceration? 
The language in a local ordinance with respect to assigning work to inmates is not determinative, although it may be considered in determining whether the inmate's work is compulsory or voluntarily. Using the Rowland factors, the WCAB panel concluded that Mr. Brown's work at the time was voluntary. Thus, it concluded that he is an employee of the county and entitled to workers' comp benefits. And in employment law litigation, a Superior Court judge issued a temporary restraining order which stopped the Department of Industrial Relations from implementing the Fast Food Standards and Accountability Recovery Act, which was scheduled to take effect on January 1. Last Labor Day, Governor Gavin Newsom signed the Fast Food Act, giving the state's 550,000 fast food workers a seat at the table and bargaining power over their minimum wages. The act created a government panel that would set hourly wages for fast food workers of up to $22 an hour and establish workplace standards. The minimum wages they set can increase annually by the same as the consumer price index up to a maximum of 3.5% each year. This new law also established the Fast Food Council, composed of 10 members to be appointed by the governor and other members of state government. But in response to this act, the California small business owners, restaurateurs, franchisees, employees, consumers, and community-based organizations announced the formation of a coalition to use the referendum process to refer the FAST Act back to voters and suspend its implementation until they have a say in the next election on November 2024. The coalition's effort is co-chaired jointly by the National Restaurant Association, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and the International Franchise Association. This group claimed that the Fast Food Act would drastically increase food prices by as much as 20% and create a massive new government bureaucracy to regulate locally owned restaurants. On December 5, the coalition submitted over 1 million signatures from Californians to county election facilities in order to prevent the act from taking effect until voters have their say back uh, have their say on November 2024 ballot. However, the DIR director sent the coalition a letter on December 27, 2022, stating that it intends to implement the Fast Food Act on January 1, but if and when the referendum qualifies for the ballot, the law will be put on hold. So the local restaurants coalition filed a lawsuit on December 29th, 2022, claiming that the state's constitution dictates that as a part of the referendum process, laws cannot go into effect until voters have an opportunity to exercise their voice. According to a minute order in the case dated December 30, 2022, a Sacramento County Superior Court judge granted an ex-party application for a temporary restraining order and set a further hearing on an order to show cause regarding the preliminary injunction 
on January 13, 2023 at 1.30 p.m. in Department 21. And in regulatory news, employers and their vendors need to be aware of the significant changes that are now in effect as the California Privacy Rights Act, that's CPRA, became operative on January 1, 2023. The implementation of consumer privacy rights in California began back in 1972 when California voters amended the California Constitution to include the right of privacy among the inalienable rights of all people. Since 1972, the California legislature has adopted specific mechanisms to safeguard Californians' privacy. But consumers had no right to learn what personal information a business had collected about them and how they used it, or to direct businesses not to sell the consumer's personal information. So a San Francisco real estate developer, Alastair McTaggart, began advocating for consumer privacy a few years ago. After a Google engineer he met at a dinner party told him that Americans would be shocked by how much the Google knows about us. McTaggart successfully pushed the legislature to pass a landmark data privacy law in 2018 known as the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. The 2018 CCPA gave California consumers the right to learn what information a business has collected about them, to delete their personal information, to stop businesses from selling their personal information, including using it to target them with ads that follow them as they browse the internet from one website to another and to hold businesses accountable if they do not take reasonable steps to safeguard their personal information. But Mr. McTaggart soon discovered that this law passed by the California legislature needed some changes, so he drove the effort to put Proposition 24 on the 2020 ballot, and voters seemed to have agreed with him. Thus, The California Privacy Rights Act of 2020, that's CPRA, also known as Proposition 24, was a California ballot proposition that was approved by a majority of voters after appearing on the ballot for the general election on November 3, 2020. This proposition expanded California's consumer privacy law and built upon the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. The new CPRA took effect on December 16, 2020, but most of the provisions revising the CCPA did not become operative until January 1, 2023. CPRA did not replace the California Consumer Privacy Act, but is more accurately described as an amendment of the California Consumer Privacies Act. And it also created the California Privacy Protection Act, which is vested with full administrative power, authority, and jurisdiction to implement and enforce the CCPA. It also eliminated the California Consumer Privacy Act's exemption for employee personal information. Because of that, workers now have the same rights as any consumer 
including requirements that are currently in effect under CCPA, as well as the new requirements added under the CRPA. CRPA applies only to employers that are California residents, that is, employees that are California residents, but businesses with a presence in multiple jurisdictions can consider applying a uniform approach, but should keep in mind employment laws in other jurisdictions. Notably, recent comprehensive data privacy laws passed in Virginia, Colorado, Utah, and Connecticut. They exempted personal data collected in the context of employment. Employers must provide notice of employees' right under the CPRA and give employees a way to tell the employer about their exercise of these rights. And the employer has limited time to respond to a request and must properly document all responses. A new California Workers' Compensation Institute study finds that after across-the-board declines in California inpatient hospitalizations during the COVID-19 healthcare crisis, the number of inpatient stays paid under Medicare, Medi-Cal, and private coverage all began to rebound in 2021. But the number of workers' compensation hospitalizations fell an additional 5.7%. The 2021 decline in workers' compensation hospitalizations brought the total decline over the past decade to 48.1%, more than triple the 10-year decline of 15% noted for workers' compensation hospital stays paid under private coverage. Most workers' compensation hospital stays are for the treatment of musculoskeletal and connective tissue disorders. But COVID's impact is evident in the recent data as a percentage of injured worker inpatient stays for the treatment of diseases and disorders of the respiratory system nearly tripled and remained at an elevated level in 2021. Half of these were for respiratory infections and inflammation although injured worker hospitalizations in this diagnostic category included a large share of collapsed lungs and major chest traumas. Surgical stays are far more prevalent in workers' comp than in other systems. Workers' compensation inpatient surgeries continue to be led by spinal fusions and major joint replacements. Despite a sharp Decline in workers' compensation spinal fusions, nearly 60% since 2012, they are still far more prevalent among the injured worker inpatient population than among inpatients covered by Medi-Cal, Medicare, or private coverage. And as for workers' compensation joint replacement surgeries, the Institute found that 88% of all injured workers who underwent knee or hip replacements in 2021, were diagnosed with primary osteoarthritis, which tends to develop from mechanical wear and tear, structural degeneration, and joint inflammation, rather than from an acute direct trauma to the joint associated with a specific injury. And the decline in workers' compensation inpatient surgeries has been somewhat offset by an increase in the number of injured worker spinal fusions and total joint replacements performed on an outpatient basis. 
More detailed findings from the CWCI study have been released in a research update report, Trends in the Utilization of Inpatient Care in California, available on the CWCI website. And in medical news, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, telemedicine adoption was far from widespread. As the technology was not in place, consumers were not ready, and providers resisted the shift to virtual care. Then came the pandemic and the need for social distancing, and suddenly telemedicine was in high demand. By June 2020, approximately 40% of healthcare encounters were conducted virtually. But as COVID restrictions lifted, use of telemedicine dropped from the highs of 2020 lockdowns to a more stable 10 to 15% of encounters. And telemedicine is taking incremental steps toward mainstream adoption now, with initiatives such as one that just launched at the federal level this week. The National Institutes of Health, in collaboration with the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has just launched the Home Test to Treat program as an entirely virtual community health intervention. Telehealth services provider eMed will implement the Home Test to Treat program since they have administered millions of verified at-home telehealth sessions during the pandemic. eMed will host the user-friendly Home Test to Treat website, where participants can sign up for the program, report symptoms, receive telehealth and antiviral treatment delivery, and coordinate telehealth-enabled test kits. The University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School researchers, in collaboration with eMed, will analyze data collected from each participating community including clinical outcomes from the treatments. Berks County, Pennsylvania will be the first to pilot the Home Test to Treat program later this month, and up to 8,000 eligible residents are anticipated to participate in the program. Information from participants will help identify best practices and improvements to the Home Test to Treat model that can be used to implement the program on a larger scale. Then, additional communities across the county will be selected to participate by providing services to about 100,000 people across the United States in the coming year. Major pharmacy chains, including CVS and Walgreens, already offer telehealth services that can help facilitate treatments for COVID-19 and some primary care physicians also provide this option for their patients. Hospital overcrowding and healthcare access challenges have prompted two counties in Central California to issue emergency declarations in less than a week, and the largest health system in the region has gone out of network with several commercial insurance plans. The emergency declarations largely stem from the recent closure of Madeira Community Hospital, the city's only hospital for about 150,000 residents. It officially shut its doors at the end of the year after Trinity Health's plan to buy the hospital fell through 
because the health system did not accept the conditions set forth by the California Attorney General. The lack of hospital services in Madera County is expected to strain local resources deployed within Madera County, thereby depleting ambulance and response resources such as law enforcement and fire. By proclaiming a local state of emergency, officials are formally requesting help from state and federal officials. The closure means residents in Madera will have to travel at least a half an hour to other hospitals, many of which are in neighboring Fresno County and are already overcrowded. So this triggered Fresno County to proclaim its own emergency declaration on January 3, citing the additional strain the Madeira Hospital closure has put on other area hospitals amid a surge in respiratory viruses. The Fresno County Board of Supervisors also said local emergency services were operating under an assess and refer policy, which diverts non-emergency patients from hospitals to other sources of care, and that it adopted the emergency resolution to emphasize the need for assistance also at the state and federal level. And Fresno County's largest health system, Clovis, California-based Community Health System, operates four hospitals, a cancer institute, and other outpatient facilities in the area. Its in-network contracts expired between community and several commercial payers at the end of the year, including ones with United Healthcare, Cigna, and Anthem Blue Cross. And they involve, the involved parties are still actively negotiating to reach agreements. The University College Hospital in London researchers were trying to find ways to reduce some of this surgical trauma inherent in all surgery, known as local inflammatory response, which they hypothesized as a cause of suboptimal total knee arthroplasty or TKA patient outcomes. A team from University College Hospital in London designed a study to check that hypothesis and the results were published in the November 2, 2022 edition of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. One of the researchers commented that there's a high incidence of patient dissatisfaction following total knee arthroplasty, with up to 20% of patients reporting dissatisfaction in an otherwise uncomplicated TKA. The research group conducted and, dis and disseminated the results of a randomized controlled trial studying the systematic inflammatory response of robotic arm-assisted versus conventional TKA, and it found that robotic arm-assisted TKA was associated with a transient reduction in the seventh postoperative day and with less iatrogenic soft tissue injury and bone trauma. Pain scores in the robotic arm-assisted group were significantly lower on days 1, 2, and 7, and that both the local and systemic responses were correlated with pain. Conceptually, it could also be associated with a reduction in local inflammation, since robotic arm assistance has features that could translate to a reduced local inflammatory response, such as 
the haptically controlled saw blade and stereotactic boundaries. The surgical workflow during the conventional technique, including procedures of substantial metal, metal debris, could be responsible for more pronounced inflammatory response. Thus, the researchers concluded by stating that the study provides additional evidence of the advantages of robotic arm surgery. Undergoing the rigors of hip or knee surgery at 90 years of age or older, those are non-agenarians, is understandably cause for concern and hesitation. But another noteworthy medical study, a group of researchers in California decided to look at the data and determine objectively if these 90-year-old older patients indeed have an increased risk of complications and hospital readmissions as compared with octogenarians and septogenarians. Their work was published in the November 15, 2022 edition of the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. A co-author of the study noted that as our population ages and more people are living active lives into their 90s and beyond, and more and more physicians are frequently confronted with elderly patients that are suffering with life-defining arthritis of hip and knee, these patients, like their younger counterparts, are seeking ways to improve the quality of their lives and maintain their independence and mobility and have not had success with non-surgical care. It is now commonplace to perform joint replacement in patients in their 70s and 80s, but must le much less common to do so when people are in their 90s. But there was not enough data to guide surgeons to provide a clear risk-benefit counseling regarding joint replacement for these very elderly patients. Therefore, they mined the Scripps database and the researchers identified 58 patients aged 90 or older who had primary unilateral total joint arthroplasty. The research team found that non-agenarians had the highest rate of medical complications, 33%, compared with octogenarians, 14%, and septuagenarians, 3%. However, the rates of surgical orthopedic-related complications were not statistically different among non-agenarians, octogenarians, and septogenarians. Hospital readmission rates were highest in non-agenarian patients, 11%, but they were not statistically different compared with octogenarians, 5%, or septogenarians, 2%. But although the 90-year-olds had a higher overall complication rate, most of these were minor and resolved over time. And importantly, deaths were not more frequent in the oldest group. There was no statistically significant difference in orthopedic complications or mortality in these older cohort of patients in their 90s compared to patients in their 70s or 80s. Furthermore, these patients are just as happy with the outcome as any other group. Thus, they concluded that age alone should not be an absolute contraindication to joint replacement surgery, and non-agenarians with severe hip 
or knee arthritis should be afforded the opportunity to choose surgical care as an alternative to the status quo of their lives. Surgical care involves risk at any age. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I am Renee Foles to Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.